All right, guys. All right, we did the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Did we take the offering? All right, good. Well, then we better pray and ask the Lord to meet with us here tonight. So, Father, in the midst of uh, nonsense and foolishness that surrounds us in this culture, we thank you for your sure word, and we thank you for the fact that you are there. We thank you that, uh, that you sit above all of this, and you look down, and Psalm 2 tells us that you laugh at those that would raise their fist against you and try to undo your uh, principles and your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in charge. We thank you that you are in control. So many of us in here, Lord, we like to be in control. We, um, we get uncomfortable when we're not. And the fact of the matter is we're never in control. But at times we are disillusioned uh, uh, and uh, self-deceived into thinking there are things that we control. But we don't control anything. Everything we have comes from your hand. You have been so good to us. You have... You have blessed us beyond our wildest dreams. Even those of us that are in difficult straits, even those of us that have suffered loss, you've been good to us. Uh, Your grace has come to us in ways that, um, that sometimes we just gloss right over. So we want to acknowledge you tonight. We, we want to look to you and to your word. We ask that you would give us some Uh, order in our lives. We ask that you would give us some perspective. We ask, Lord, that in a a world that has lost uh, uh, all reference point to truth and to common sense, that we might discover it again in your word tonight as we do every time we look into it. For the guys that are here tonight that are hurting, we pray that you will comfort them, that they will Be reminded that you are with them, that you are near to the brokenhearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. For the guys who are overwhelmed, we pray that they'll be able to cast all of their anxiety upon you because you care for them. For the guys, Lord, that that are hurting relationally, that are going through a divorce, uh, that, that are going through a difficult time with, uh, with a child, maybe with a prodigal, we pray, Lord, that you will be near to them. And even as they would love to see their families reunited and that is out of their control, we pray, Lord, that they would look to you and ask you to do the work that, that only you can do. You're the God who makes sense out of our lives, even out of the most chaotic of circumstances. So, Lord, teach us tonight the defense barriers that might be there. By your grace, may we take them down so that we can be not only hearers but doers. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Just about every Wednesday when I come here, there's a packet for me that Lou Spencer puts on this table. And uh, there's one in here this week, a red one, and it tells me where I'm going this weekend and to what group I'm speaking 
and where it is. And this says uh, Promise Keepers, Long Island, New York. So that's where I'm going this weekend. But last weekend, I went to a deal called Men's Roundup in, um, uh, in Oregon. And Men's Roundup, before Promise Keepers um, came along, Men's Roundup was consistently the largest men's gathering in the country. Uh, they, they, on a low year, they have 1,500 guys. They'll run up to 2,200. And it's been going on since 1950. And the first time I ever went there was in 1973. And uh, I, was, I was in my first year at Western Seminary, and somebody told me about it, and a bunch of us got up the next morning and drove down and heard Howard Hendricks. And you're up in the mountains of Oregon, outside of Eugene, and uh, it's, it's pretty neat. So I'm going there to speak this last weekend. So, and it's, you know, it's a fairly long trip from Dallas, flying to Portland, and uh, then I had to switch planes and get down to Eugene. So I'm looking at my red thing that Lou gave me and uh, see what time my flight to Eugene was. And then I noticed, and then he told me what time I was going to speak that night. And then I noticed he had a note that says, they want you to speak on tempered steel. And um, that was the first time I remember hearing that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, Timber Steel was a book that I did about three years ago. And uh, I said, hmm, that's interesting. Okay. So then I rent a car and I drive up in the mountains and I pull into the camp, Camp Tadmore. And here's this huge banner that says, Men's Roundup 2005, Tempered Steel. <laughs> And, uh, and then um, I pull up, and the guy, the parking guy, he's got a, he's got a hat that says, Tempered Steel. And they got a logo, and it's a wrist. It's a guy holding a, it's a, guy holding a, a, a crescent wrench, you know, but it's just kind of just the fist. Tempered Steel. And, uh, and then I, I got into where I was staying, and there was a hat said Temper Steel. There was a shirt that said Temper Steel. Uh, they had a little outline thing, a little notebook thing, Tempered Steel. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I, I think these guys want me to speak on Tempered Steel. <laughs> and I had nothing with me from Tempered Steel. And, uh, and so I'm talking to this guy that put this thing together, and I said, so, uh, so you guys want me to talk on Tempered Steel? He goes, yeah. And I said, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I didn't know that until I read that thing this afternoon in the airport. He goes, you're kidding. And I said, no, I'm not. Uh, he said, I told Lou. Lou doesn't know any of this because I haven't talked with Lou. But he said, I told Lou about it. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, you know, Lou's pretty, that's, that's and I was thinking, Lou doesn't miss much. He, he's, he's pretty sharp on this stuff. And I said, he said, yeah, I told him we wanted to do this. And, you know, that, 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 we just, and as I'm talking, I said, um, and, and when did you have this conversation with Lou? He said, two years ago. <laughs> I said, yeah. Okay, good. Fortunately, one of the guys had a tempered steel book. Now, I bring all that up to say this. Uh, we are doing a study. We're kind of doing a snapshot study through 2 Corinthians this fall. We're not doing the, the book verse by verse, but I'm taking sections because there are sections of 2 Corinthians that basically give you a glimpse into the life. There's a biography there on Paul. There, yeah, there, are, there are leadership lessons there, 
out of Paul. Uh, when, you, when you read through 2 Corinthians, th- there is more personal information in 2 Corinthians. You get more of a glimpse. I think, was it Dick Schapp that used to do a, a, a program called Up Close and Personal? And I think it started during the Olympics about 20 years ago. He'd interview, you know, some, some athlete, uh, you know, some shot putter or something. And they called these little segments Up Close and Personal. That's kind of what we're doing with Paul. We're getting up close and personal and, and seeing how it is that God puts together uh, uh, a man and how, how it is that God puts together a leader because there is a process that is involved. There is a process that God uses in taking a man and getting a man ready and getting a man equipped. Uh, God, has, God has something for each of us to do. Um, we're, we're, we're all leaders. We're different kinds of leaders. We have different personalities. We have different temperaments. Uh, some guys are up front. Some guys are behind the scenes. But, but by the fact that you're a man, you're to be a leader. Uh, someone is watching your life. You are influencing someone. When God creates us and when God makes us and when God puts us together, and it really is a fascinating process quite frankly, the fact that you are who you are. You, you are um, a compilation of, I think this is going to be interesting when we get to heaven, to actually see how God wove the generations together and, and produced you, produced your son, produced your daughter. Uh, none of us live alone. None, none of us live in isolation. We are unique, but we are all influenced um, Remember, the, remember Jaws, and you might remember that one scene in Jaws where, and I'm not sure I can remember, but there was a, a scene with a father and a son, and the father was, I think, sitting at a table, and every move he made, his son was sitting there who was 9, 10 years old. And basically, what, he, he, realized, he realized that whatever he did, his son was watching him, and then his son would do the exact same thing. Uh, our fathers raised us. We tend to um, imitate our fathers. And, and as we get older, we find ourselves becoming our fathers. We find ourselves saying things our fathers said. We find our, things we thought we'd never say. We, we find ourselves uh, saying and emulating and becoming almost like a broken record. And you know what Mark Twain said. He said, when I was 16, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to be around the man. But by the time I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in five years. And so the older we get, our perspective grows. It's just not your father who has influenced you. We've been influenced by people up through the generations in our family chain. We have no idea who they were. Benjamin Franklin always felt that he was out of place in his family. He felt like he didn't fit. In fact, he left home at a very, very early age. He, he, he did not have a good relationship with his father, with his brothers. He just felt like he was a duck out of water in his entire family. Wasn't close to anybody, didn't relate to anybody. And it was 30 years later that he actually took a trip to England and went back to his ancestral home and was able to look at some of the records of this town which he came from and found out that probably six generations back, great-great-great-great-grandfather, for the first time there was somebody he related to. Because he realized, I'm just like him. This man, this man was inventing things. This man was, had his hand. This, this guy had 30 different things, 30 different balls in the air at one time. That was Franklin. For the first time, he was sure that he was from that family. He was influenced by that man. He knew nothing of. That's just the way it works. 
God uses all kinds of different things in our lives to make us into the men that he wants us to be. One of the things that he does in our lives is that uh, he uses hardship and adversity and difficulty. And as we saw last week in 2 Corinthians, um, he uses afflictions and he uses pressures and he uses crushings in our lives to develop us. He, he uses the very things that we want nothing to do with in order to give us what we so deeply desire. We want to be mature. We want to be men of character. We want to be men who make a difference. Uh, you don't get that by having everything go your way. You don't get that by having everything you touch turn to gold. You don't, you don't get that by being successful at everything. Uh, in, in order to become the man that you would desire to be and the man that God wants you to be, uh, there's got to be some hurt, there's got to be some pain, there's got to be some failure, there's got to be some stuff you regret. That's just how it works. There's a process. And I became aware this weekend that I actually wrote something on this three years ago that I had totally forgot about. So I'd like to read this section to you, which is what I read um, this weekend in order to save my tail since I had no idea that I was supposed to be speaking on this subject. This is how I've become familiar with this again. Generally speaking, steel is an alloy of iron and carbon. You can't have steel without iron. Iron itself is an alloy. There is a formula for making iron. It's a recipe. It has been said that making iron is something like baking a cake. The key ingredient in that cake, the flour, if you will, is iron ore. And into that iron ore, you stir coke, limestone, air, and water. This recipe is cooked in a blast furnace that can be as high as 15 stories and achieves temperatures up to 3,000 degrees. The intense heat caused the raw, causes the raw material to melt together. The melted iron, freed from impurities, trickles down to the lowest part of the furnace. The slag containing the impurities floats on top of iron four or five feet deep. It takes incredible heat to make iron. But in order to get steel, you need even more fire and heat. A lot of times we'll go through some stuff and we'll go, whew, man, that's the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. Man, I never want to go through something like that again. And then guess what happens? It gets worse. And why does it get worse? Because that first deal, you're just iron, man. Bless us talk about Iron Man groups. That's a good term. But it goes on to steel. Well, how do, you, how, do you, how do you turn into steel? Well, there's more heat and there's more difficulty. It takes incredible heat to make iron, but in order to get steel, you need even more fire and heat. Steel is stronger than iron, but also flexible and can be shaped into a number of various products. There are a number of methods to make steel. One method requires an open hearth furnace, a structure the size of a two-story house, producing temperatures in excess of 3,000 degrees. It is significant that each batch of steel made in a furnace is called a heat. That makes all kinds of sense, doesn't it? Another method is the Bessemer method. The Bessemer converter is an open-topped egg-shaped furnace that can be tipped on its side. As air is blown into the converter at high pressure, flames shoot into the air with a great roar. These flames reach as high as 30 feet and can be seen for miles at night. 
The temperatures in the Bessemer method reach up to 3,500 degrees. Needless to say, there is no steel without fire and heat. You know, for years, the best steel in the world came from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Bethlehem Steel. I've been there. And uh, there's not a lot of action going on in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania anymore. But it used to be that was the best steel in the world. Um, And all of these processes, and they still have the steel mills there, and you can see these huge blast furnaces. And and, and you've seen the the film, and you've seen the video of that process. There's another kind of uh, Bethlehem steel that uh, is produced. But it's only produced in the lives of those who follow the one uh, who was born in Bethlehem. It's a process that the Lord Jesus Christ develops uh, into his men. Uh, it, it's how he makes his men. And, and really, if you will, what, what, what he is attempting in our lives is to turn us into Bethlehem steel. Uh, we, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, David was also born in Bethlehem. And when you look at certain individuals in the Scripture, you can see, including David, the process they went through in order for God to do the work in their lives that he wanted to do in order to turn them into the kind of men that he wanted them to become. David, Joseph, Daniel, Paul. So, in 2 Corinthians 1, we were there last week. Let's go back there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we continue to see this process that God uses in order to make a leader and in order to make a man into the man that God wants him to be. None of us want to waste our lives. Uh, We want our lives to count. We we want to make a difference. We, We want to have impact. We want to have influence. In order for that to happen, we have to give up control and we have to yield and we have to surrender to the work that the master wants to do in our lives. But it's a tough work and it's a hard work and it's, it's at times a very, very bitter work and, and a, a, a work that raises all kinds of questions Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? Uh, The first snapshot we looked at last week was in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, actually 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we were ourselves comforted by God. That word affliction we pointed out last week can mean pressures. A synonym also would be crushings. We get crushed. Who comforts us in our affliction. Why do we have to be afflicted? Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Why do we get afflicted? Why do we get pressures? Why do we get crushed? Because the only way that God can ever use you is for you to get crushed, for you then to be comforted, and then that comfort with, with which you have received, you then are used by God to distribute that comfort to others who are in need. It's amazing how this works. You'll run into somebody, you'll be on a plane, you'll have a conversation. You never know. But a conversation starts up, and someone's in the fire, they're in the heat, and 
They've never been there before, and they think there's no one who can understand. And then God sovereignly puts you together with them, and suddenly there's a connection. That's how God works. This is not a pleasant experience, but it's a necessary experience. Verse 8, and we just touched on 8 last week in closing. Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. He's talking about his own affliction here. Here you're getting into this guy's life. Here you're getting into a chapter that really up to now has not been revealed. Great leader. Great, great leader. Steel trap mind. Uh, guy that had all the qualifications. Guy, uh, a guy that had all of the, uh, all, all the pedigree. A guy that had all of the uh, uh, theological training. Uh, trained under Gamaliel. This guy was born to be a leader, um, to be a teacher, to be up front, to be an influencer, uh, to lead many. Spoke, went to Greece, spoke in Athens, spoke to some of the greatest minds in all the world, spoke to them of, uh, of the risen Lord. Verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction or our crushing, our crushing, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, just not burdened, not just burdened, but burdened excessively. Have you ever been burdened excessively? You're just about out of steam. You're just about out of gas. There's some kind of scale that has been developed that assigns points to particularly stressful events in our lives. I, I, I haven't seen this for years, but ballpark. Let's say that. Uh, let's say that. The death of a spouse would be 90 points, pretty severe. Um, the loss of a home or loss of a business, um, as some folks, many folks have experienced here in recent weeks, that'd be right up there in the 90s. Um, cancer, that's right up there. But then they go through, they go through all kinds. I mean, they got scores of things on there. Christmas is on there. I mean, Christmas, I like, get 28 points just for Christmas. <laughs> In-laws visiting, 800 points. <laughs> it's got different stuff. And, and, and again, I'm doing this off the top of my head. But whoever put that together basically said that if you've got, and I mean, I'm not going to get this number right. If you have more than 250 points in a 12-year period of time, you are going to experience some kind of significant depression in your life. Significant. Because depression, unless it's for physiological reasons, depression comes from loss. You lose something. Your wife dies. You have a child uh, tragically drowns or is run over by a car. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German uh, theologian and uh, 
and guy with enough guts to stand up to Hitler when most pastors didn't have it. I remember reading one of his biographies, and uh, his oldest brother was um, his oldest brother was killed in battle in World War One, and uh, he his father, the effect that had on his father. There were certain things they did in their family every year at Christmas, a very close family. For 10 years, his father could not bring himself to put out certain Christmas mementos that they had. He couldn't do it. He could, it was 10 years, and, and, and he, it was noticeable. It, when he saw his father put certain things out on the tree, he knew he was beginning to heal. Beginning. Because that loss was so great in his life. It took him 10 Christmases. See what happened to his father. His father got crushed. You go to Israel and, boy, there's all just amazing stuff there. And you're in Jerusalem. But then you go across that, you, there's that, just that little drop, and then you go up and there's the, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, and then you've got, uh, you got, you got, they built the church down at the bottom of the hill. But you'll see these olive presses, and you'll see these wine presses. And they take these olives, and they put them in these presses, and they got these huge, massive stones. And then they, and then they start rolling those stones, and those suckers just get crushed. Now that's what happens to us. That's what happened to Christ. That's what happened to Paul. He says we were burdened excessively. See, when this happens, you're not sure you're going to recover. When this happens, you're not sure you're ever going to pull out of it. Burden excessively, catch this, beyond our strength. So, so often, so flippantly. And I said this last week, but I was rushing on this last week. And this is so rich, I don't want to rush on it. So often we'll flippantly say, God will never give you more than you can handle. God gave Paul more than he could handle here. Isn't that what he says? We were burdened excessively, not according to my strength. Burdened excessively, what? Beyond my strength. I can't take this. I can't handle this. What we find out is that when we're at the end of our rope and we're at the end of our strength, he supplies more strength. The weaker you get, the stronger you become. As we saw last week, we referred to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, you know, he had the thorn in the flesh. He asked the Lord to remove it. And the Lord's response was, my grace is perfected in weakness. Actually, not grace. My strength is perfected in weakness. None of us ever want to be weak. We're men. We hate weakness. If there's anything we don't like as men, we don't like being weak. We like being strong. We like being strong physically. We like being strong emotionally. We like being uh, strong in our work. We like to be strong in our leadership. We just like to be strong. We despise weakness. 
But life in itself is a process that makes us increasingly weak. Have you noticed this? You guys remember when you'd, when you'd play basketball and you wouldn't even stretch? You remember when, you remember when you'd played basketball? <laughs> you remember that? You remember, you just, you just pick up a ball and you start playing. You wouldn't stretch. Yeah, you didn't do anything. You just played. Uh, but the older we get, the more care we have to take. Why? Because we're slowly breaking down. Uh, we're becoming weaker. Uh, we don't like that. So we do all, we, we, we do all kinds of things. We do all kinds of things to show that we're not weaker. I mean, there's, there are billions of dollars that are spent on this for guys to show that they're not weaker. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. But it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just part of life. Uh, it, it's part of the maturing process. It's part of the uh, seasoning that, that, that happens in our lives. So at some point in your life, you're going to go through something like this. We were burdened excessively... Beyond our strength, now catch this, so that we despaired even of life itself. Now, who is this talking here? Is this someone with a chemical imbalance that struggles with that every day of their life? Some folks do. And how hard would that be? Now, this is a pretty strong guy. This is a pretty capable guy. This is an ambitious guy. This is a guy that goes after it. This is a guy that gets up early and, and well, he'll just flat out work you. And he'll go all night. This is a guy that took life by the throat. This was a guy who was an achiever. This was a guy who stretched for excellence. This was not a guy who dealt with a lot of depression in his life. This was a guy that was flat out going after it. It got so bad in Asia, in this, in this episode of his life, it got so bad that he despaired of being alive. He knows Christ. He has seen the risen Christ. He's used by the Spirit of God to write Scripture. Now, if that can happen to him, it can happen to me. Why would it happen to him? Well, because God wanted to use him. In fact, God wanted to use him in such a significant way that God had to do a very, very deep work in his life. This guy was gonna. This guy was gonna go. Was gonna do some very strategic things. Uh, this guy had a bullseye painted on his back. Quite frankly, the far side. You know that Gary Larson guy with the twisted mind. His mother must have dropped him as a child. Some of those. Some of those are you immediately get the far side. Some of them are so. Um, some of them I, I still don't get. I look at them, and there's, there's something funny there, but this guy's mind is, is so different. But the one I got, and the one I never for, ever forget, I believe, what is it, two, uh, 
two elk out there? Two bears. Two bears. And this one bear has got a target right on his back. And the other bear looks at him and goes, heck of a birthmark. (laughs) When, When you come to Christ, you've got a birthmark on you. And it's a target. And the enemy's going to come after you. Because see, what's happened is your, your eyes were blind and Christ has opened your eyes. And he has brought you to faith and he has regenerated you by the Spirit of God. He has given you a new heart and he has transferred you from darkness into light. And he hasn't just done that to save you from your sin. But now he has done that to make you a lethal weapon in his, hand, in his hands, and he's going to assign you to a post, and he's going to use you in a unique way. So now we'll begin the process. But you've got a target on you, and you're going to go through some stuff. God will afflict you in order so that you can withstand the afflictions that the enemy will bring towards you. We don't like to think that God can afflict us. But I think we said in here last week, and we referred, and we've done it many times, to Job's situation. All that Job lost, and Job said, "The the, 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 the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Most evangelicals think that verse should be, the Lord gives, and Satan takes away. But that's not what the verse says. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good fathers give to their children. Good fathers also, at certain points, take away, take away from their children. Because their children need to be disciplined. Their children need to be brought into account. Their children need to be checked. Their, their children are getting a little presumptuous. Fathers love to give. We love to give to our kids. But, but if you're always given, you're not a good father. There's got to be a point where you're pulling them back. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to do the same thing with that son or daughter that the Lord's doing with you. We do the exact same thing. And fathers who never take away from their children, quite frankly, are not good fathers. Fathers who don't discipline are not good fathers. So why do we get into this tough stuff that just... Paul wanted to die. That's how bad it got. I remember that day in that bedroom. How long ago was it? 23 years ago. When it was so bad. And God, and, 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 and God I felt like he was just beating the crud out of me. And I remember the day in that bedroom, I thought, you know what? Lord, if... if if I knew that I could go get in the car and get on that freeway and you'd send an 18-wheeler and hit me head on, I'd do it. I wasn't going to take my life, but for the first time in my life, I could understand why people do. I had a wife. I had two little kids. I couldn't do that. And I wouldn't do it. But uh, the pain, the pain, I could understand for the first time in my life. Couldn't understand it before because I'd never been there. (sighs) 
So why does this stuff happen to us? This is bad stuff. This is real bad stuff. Why does this stuff happen to us? It's karma. That's in 2 Corinthians 3, I think. (laughs) It's fate. No? There's a reason. There's a purpose. Let's pick up from 8. Let's go to 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now catch this. We had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. They're like flashing lights around that phrase, so that. So why is all this going on? You know, sometimes we ask why and we don't get any response. God doesn't always, God doesn't always give us answers to why. Here, he gives you an answer to why. You may not like the answer, but he does give an answer. Indeed, Paul says, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's that all about? So that all this stuff is going for what reason? So that, Paul, you won't trust in yourself. Because here's what strong guys do. We trust in ourselves. We trust in ourselves. Now, we'd never come out and say it. But we trust in our plans. We trust in our goals. We trust in our uh, uh, accomplishments. We trust in our achievements. We trust in the futures we have sketched out for us, and we've got a real clear idea of how we want that future to look. See, we trust in ourselves because we're men and because we're strong and because we're visionary and because we're aggressive and because we're go-getters and we're not sitting around on the couch all day. We want to do something. We want to make something. We want to achieve. We want our lives to count. And guys like that have a tremendous danger of trusting in themselves. So what does God do? He hurts us and he crushes us uh, he, uh, he devastates us so that we learn not to trust in our, not to trust. What is it? Hey, let me ask you something. What are some things that guys trust in? I mean, live their life, going through life, trusting in money. We trust in money. Yeah. Money is not a bad thing, necessarily. Money can be a root of all evil. It is a root of all evil. You got to have money, you got to pay the bills. Joe Lewis said, I don't love money, but it calms my nerves. <laughs> I, I understand that, don't you? Money has a way of just kind of calming the nerves, especially when that rent's due every month. You see? But what happens is we start trusting in the money. What else do we trust in? What? Job. We trust in a job. We trust in a job. We trust in our career, in our career path. Yeah. We trust in it. We think it's always going to be there. We count on it. What else? What? Our home. Our home. Yeah. 
especially if you get to a point where you can kind of put your dream home together. You see? Over the years, i got to tell you something. I, I, I bet you I've had this happen to me. I had a count. I've had it to me, I bet you, at least six times where I've met somebody and, you know, have dinner with them, get to know their story, and their story always involves, here's how it goes. Well, we had just built our dream home. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious. You know, like we had, you know, God's been good to us and, you know, the kids and all this stuff, and we had just built our dream home and then, boom, right in the chops. Well, we didn't see this coming. And it's not always bad. Sometimes it's just a shift. We just gotten settled in, just got that home, just right, you know, the whole thing. And then we wound up moving 800 miles away. Or this, or that, or. Yeah, it's good. Somebody else. What else? What else do we trust in? Our wife. We, sp- we trust in our spouse. That they'll always be there. They won't always be there. Now, now you, usually guys die before their wives, not always. And there are guys in here, and your wife, you thought she'd always be with you, and she's left you. I had lunch in Oregon with a guy who sat down across from me, and, uh, you know, six guys at the table, and we start talking. I had, real, I had a hard time hearing this guy, and he talked real slow. And, and I almost asked him to speak up, and later I was so glad that I didn't because he couldn't speak up. He's a brain tumor. And that's why he speaks at half of the normal rate. And that's why he can't project. And one of the guys from his church later was telling me a story. I couldn't quite pick up. He started telling me a story. It was really hard to get it. But the great guy in our church and loved the Lord and going business and the whole thing. Family, just, just a guy that you really appreciated. And his brain tumor shows up. And it's, I, I don't have all the details, guys, but they said, you know, they can't get it. Wherever it is, I'm not a physician on the diagnosis, but they're not able to operate. And he keeps deteriorating. His wife took off on him, took the kids, moved to another state. He thought he could count on her. She couldn't take it. She said in sickness and in health, and she didn't do it. If you've got a wife that sticks with you in sickness, you've got, you got a real gift, don't you? See, there are all kinds of things we trust in. There, there are a ton of them, all kinds of things we trust in. And we don't even half the time realize we're trusting in them, do we? We don't mean to. Man, we don't mean to, but we do. So what happens is God allows us, and and, and this just isn't for Paul. This is for guys that the Lord wants to use. And if you've ever ever asked the Lord in your life, Lord, would you use me? You're going to go through something like this. Now, and some of you guys go, hey, wait a minute. I've never been through anything like this. And you're telling me I might go through something like this? Yeah. Yeah. How else can I encourage you? <laughs> I'm just called to be Robert Schuler up here and, you know, paint positive. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you. Now, 
Does everybody go through it in the same? No, no, no. But, and you don't have to be walking around, you know. <laughs> you don't have to do that. God's a good God. What does Psalm 119, 68 say? The Lord is good and the Lord does good. If he afflicts you, God is even gracious in how he afflicts you. And he will give you the grace for the affliction. Um, so we, we don't have to run around paranoid. But this is how God develops us. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in... Now catch this. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Here's what happens. When, when you get blasted and when you get crushed, all your... Uh, see, what happens is you're done, you're finished, you're, you're just pancaked. And you think you're done, and you think you're through, and, um, and you think there's no way out, and you think there's no escape. You think it'll never get better. But see, he wants us to learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Ray Stebman used to say that resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. Think about that. We love the resurrection. Up from the grave he rose. Da, da, da. But you got to be dead before you can be resurrected. Right? See, God resurrects people's lives all the time. And you think you're dead. And you're devastated. And, you, and, and your plans are dead and your dreams are dead, but you're not dead. Yet. What God does is, is that he... he he crushes us, and then what he does is, after he's done that deep work that can be done nowhere else except in a blast furnace, what he does is he then raises you up. And now, you, now you've got the degree that you can't earn in any university. And, and now you have the... Uh, now you have the sympathy that was never there before. And, and now you, see, you, got, you get stuff in the furnace you get nowhere else. Well, that Lou's holding up the five-minute thing. And uh, i got to bring this to a close. I got 20 minutes worth of stuff here. I mentioned this last week. I want to clarify it. What's that? Keep going. Keep going? Just forget what he said? I did that about Oregon. I might as well do it about the time, huh? <laughs> I mentioned last week uh, something that Tony Campolo said. And I want to reiterate it because it, we'll just pull everything together off this. Um, Campolo wrote an article last week concerning what happened in in, in the Gulf with the hurricane. And uh, raising the question, why didn't God do something? Campolo responds, unfortunately, the, there are a lot of bad answers. One such answer is that somehow all suffering is part of God's great plan. He's, he's mocking that. Well, can I tell you something? All suffering is part of God's plan. In the midst of agony, someone is likely to quote from the Bible telling us, where else are you going to quote? 
telling us that if we would just be patient, we eventually would see all things work together for the good for those who love. Actually, it's misquoted. He misquoted. For those, actually, 828. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, he says, I don't doubt that God can bring good out of tragedies, but the Bible is clear that God is not the author of evil. Now, follow this. Faulty reasoning. Statements like that dishonor God. What statements? Statements that all suffering is from God. I'm sorry, pal, but you're wrong. You know, if you're going to teach the Bible, you're held to a higher judgment. Statements like that dishonor God and are responsible for driving more people away from Christianity than all the arguments that atheistic philosophers could even muster. When the flood swept into the Gulf Coast, God was the first one who wept. And then Tony says, perhaps we would do well to listen to the likes of Rabbi Harold Kushner, who contends that God is not really as powerful as we have claimed. That is heresy. Nowhere in the Hebrew Scriptures does it say that God is omnipotent. (laughs) This is the guy that Christianity Today did an article on in the last two years and called him the prophet of Christianity. The prophet of Christianity. And he's looking to a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book called what ha- When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And basically his explanation is, is that God is not omnipotent. God does not have all power like the scriptures say. That's his answer. I mean, God would really like to help you out, pal. But he's not quite, he's not quite as strong as we've made him out to be. Kushner puts out that the omnipotence, that omnipotence is a Greek philosophical concept, but it is not in his Bible. Hey, Tony, read your Bible. Read Psalm 139. Read Amos 3. Catch this. Can a calamity? This is, Amos is in here. It's right next to Andy. (laughs) Catch it. Now, this is a verse, it's one of those verses that's obscure because you don't want to, it's too hard to handle. But catch this. If a calamity, Amos says, occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And we would all say, no. God would have nothing to do with that, really. You ever read the book of Revelation? There are calamities in Revelation. There are judgments. There are trumpet judgments. There are bold judgments. There are all kinds of judgments that are going to be poured out on cities and on nations. And I imagine there will be somebody around on Christian television, because I think there will be Christian television after the rapture, (laughs) because half of them aren't Christians. But that's another issue. But no. I didn't mean to get off on that. But somebody will say, God had nothing to do with this. Can a calamity come upon a city? What does it say? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Most evangelicals say no. Well, you know, if you say no, then you've just raised a huge issue. So does God not have the power? I mean, so wait a minute, Steve. A lot of people got hurt. I know a lot. A lot of people got killed. I, 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 I know. I know. But let's stand back. 
Do you, do you think anybody came to Christ in New Orleans in the last two weeks? Do you think anybody in an attic with water coming up here said, Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive me of my sin? I've known the gospel since I was a little kid, but I fought you and resisted you. And I'm just asking. Do you think, and again, obviously some bureaucratic snafus and some things, and then we just shake our head. Do you think that it might be possible down the road there's going to be an even greater calamity in this nation? And as a result, you know there will be. And as a result, and as a result of what was learned from the mistakes that were made here, that maybe hundreds of thousands of people's lives will be saved? See, we get so narrow. We get so focused. Camp Paul, oh, this is evil. God said, listen, pal, God knows 10 million things you never thought about. And he's good. And he has all power. Read the Bible. When Job had those issues with the Lord, the Lord says, hey, where were you when I made the oceans? And said to them, this far and no further. That's how he starts. He's got all power. He speaks, and he stills the storm. He sends storms. He sends tsunamis. Hey, I I'll give you another one. God runs every cell in your body. What's cancer? Cancer are cells out of control. They're not out of control. You say, no, wait a minute, Steve. Why would God? I don't know. I can't tell you that. But I'm not going to whittle God down to size so I can feel comfortable with him. And explain everything, and we can tie in a little bow and a little knot and say, oh, this is how it works. I don't know how it works. But I'm not going to cut him off at the knees and say he's weak. God's never the author of evil. God is never the source of evil. But God uses evil for his purposes. Bad stuff can happen. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. It's bad stuff. It's not good stuff. But he's good, and he'll use it for our good. If we'll bow, if we'll submit, if we'll have teachable hearts in the midst of it. So what do you do with all these displaced people? And they realize, keep a teachable spirit. What's the Lord want to do in your life here? What's he, what, what, get in the scripture. Get godly counsel. Get in, a, get in a church that teaches word. What is God saying here? See, the fact of the matter is, God does work all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. He won't always leave you there. He'll teach you the lessons. He'll raise you up. And down the line, you'll look back, as Solzhenitsyn did. You'll look back and say, thank you, God, for prison. Blessed prison. Blessed prison. See, only God can do that. That's the God of the Bible. Let's bow and thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're there, that you're strong, that you know all things. We cannot figure you out. We, we, we can't explain this stuff. How, how can you send a calamity and, and people get hurt and people get wounded and, and 
we just can't explain it, but your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts above my thoughts, our thoughts, and your ways above our ways. But Lord, we refuse to dilute what the scriptures say about you. We refuse to water it down. We can't get all the distinctions quite perhaps like we'd like them. You're not the cause of evil. You're not the source of evil. You never sin, but you allow these things to happen. I think back to the words of C.S. Lewis when he said that he believed that when we die and we go to heaven and we look around, the first words out of our mouth would be, of course, of course. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For the guys that are in the crushing, encourage them, Lord. Let them know you have not forgotten about them. There's a reason they are there, and they won't be there forever. Let them know you're with them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.